Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas, your stand-in podcast host for this week. Christmas is nearly here, but for many people, it is not the season to be jolly. Anything but. Striking train drivers, striking nurses, striking postmen, baggage handlers, bus drivers, driving examiners, UK Border Force staff, the list goes on and on. So what's going on? Why are so many striking? What's the government trying to do about it? And will it succeed? And is this a winter of discontent to match discontented winters of the past? We'll wade into the industrial action and try to make sense of the situation. And there's a subject that we haven't discussed for a while, but comes around, uh, importantly, every few years, NHS reform and restructuring, which is back in the news, with a report this week saying that Health Secretary Steve Barclay is clearing a floor of the Department of Health and Social Care to move in senior officials from NHS England. So is that true? And what, do, what does it mean if he does? We'll dial up IFG senior fellow Nick Timmins, a man who understands the NHS better than pretty much anyone. And as the year draws to a close and Parliament prepares to close its doors for the holidays, we will take a look at the state of play in Westminster and ask what next year brings. So to discuss this, I'm joined by an IFG colleague who, unlike most of us, seems to have fended off the festive flu or maybe just holding it off uh, until Christmas Day. That's Nick Davis. Hello, Nick. Hello. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Rachel Sylvester, columnist and interviewer at The Times. Hi, Rachel. Are you surviving the Christmas party circuit? Yes. Hi. It's great to be here. Not at a Christmas party. (laughs) Uh, let's start with the strikes. Rachel, this is becoming a big problem for the Prime Minister. Yes, I think it just adds to this sense that the government's losing a grip and events are spiralling out of Rishi Sunak's control. You know, the country's sort of grinding to a halt. There's gridlock on the trains, nurses on strike. It's just a sense of kind of chaos emerging. Uh, and I think politically that's a big problem for the government. Um, But there's also this sense, I think the really interesting thing about the strikes is the public are going to be looking at this and thinking who is being the most reasonable. So I think when you've got ministers saying they're not even going to talk about pay with the nurses, that starts to look a bit unreasonable. But on the other side, um, when you've got Mick Lynch kind of um, ranting and raving at Michelle Hussein, that starts to look unreasonable and saying that, you know, Christmas doesn't start until Christmas Eve. So I think there's a sort of problem of the kind of gridlock and the chaos and the lack of grip, but also a kind of political perception problem about who actually is managing this in the best way. Rachel, that's really interesting. The Westminster cliche is to reach back to James Callaghan and uh, uh, the late 1970s. Do you think we're we're heading for winter of discontent type uh, uh, levels? Well, it's not there yet, is it? But that is the kind of image that haunts everyone. And I think that also is why conservatives are so determined to, to sound tough on the unions because they want to position themselves as the kind of Margaret Thatcher taking on the strikers. Um But I think if you've got the RCN coming out on strike for the first time nationally in their 106-year history, that's very different to that the kind of tough macho union barons of the past. Um, So I think there may be a danger for ministers that they're slightly misjudging the public mood. Um, I was talking to someone uh, in the Tory party recently who, who made the point that they're aware of the problem that there's a kind of hierarchy in voters' minds of the strikers. So they have still, a lot of the public still has huge sympathy for the nurses, but much less for the train drivers. Uh, and I think that is back to that sense of who's being most reasonable, who's seen to be being most reasonable. 
Yeah, battle of reasonableness. And on your point about uh, the sort of the government potentially overplaying its hand, it always strikes me that that Margaret Thatcher, uh, who you know, such a sort of motivator for some in the Conservative Party, waited five years before she really went in and um, uh, and, and took on strikers and settled in the in 1979 and the early uh, 1980s. And it was only when she felt her moment was right that she really went in and uh, and took on the the National Union of Mine, Mine Workers. So, I mean, maybe the government didn't have a choice because the sort of inflation was coming and uh, and 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 the moment is now. But but I uh, I think it's a you know it's a very difficult situation to read in that sense, isn't it? Mm. And it's also um, the role of the, of the independent pay review bodies is really interesting, too, because Downing Street and ministers keep saying, you know, we're just following the advice of the pay review bodies. But frequently in the past, since 2010, the government has ignored or overruled the pay review bodies. So that's a slightly disingenuous argument, I think. And I just wonder whether there's some landing zone here around the pay review bodies, given that they're... On, on health, that that recommendation was made when inflation was so much lower, whether it would be possible for the government to go back to the pay review bodies and ask them in the light of the much higher inflation what their current recommendation would be. I think if they were starting from scratch now, they probably wouldn't come up with a recommendation that they did. I agree with Rachel that the government's line on that its hands are tied by the pay review bodies is pretty disingenuous as, as- she says, you know, it's only a recommendation and the government has ignored it in the past. And indeed, that's what the Scottish government has done now, offering higher pay rises to call off the strikes. And the other thing is on, on the remit, as Rachel was saying. So the government says the remit for those uh, independent review boards. And that remit was set all the way back in November last year when we were in a very different inflationary uh, environment. So, you know, if the government wanted to, it could... Uh, change the remit letter that's now issued for next year, but it could also just change its mind if it wished. Yeah, I think as I mean, Rachel and Nick, you were both saying that pay review bodies are, are really interesting, but these things operate at two quite distinct levels. I was um, Jeremy Hunt's principal private secretary when he was health secretary, uh, whatever happened to him. And that was during the junior doctors strike. And it struck me that we we spent so much time talking about highly technical, you know, questions about doctors rotors and the pay settlement uh, and a lot of technical questions there's also always these arguments about who's in the room and who's not in the room and so a lot of the debate ends up focusing on quite sort of technical or procedural issues but in the end it comes down to the raw politics a kind of power play between the government and the trade unions that's based on public opinion it's based on the kind of strength of the uh, membership debate that holds up sort of behind the unions. So it was interesting to see that potentially dropping off on some of the rail strikes. And then you, you, everyone walks up the hill and there's a huge political cost at losing face to, to stepping back. So there's this, there's this big technical de- argument that almost sometimes to me feels like a bit of a distraction from the, the big political uh, power play. I don't know, Rachel, if you, if you share that analysis. I think that's absolutely right. It's sort of head versus heart, isn't it? And in the end, politics is always going to trump the kind of rational, um, treasury-driven approach. I think Jeremy Hunt is such an interesting figure in all of this, because obviously as health secretary and then as chairman of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, he took a very different position on lots of questions to do with health and social care to the one he's now taking now that he's holding the purse strings. Um, so it's, I think, uh, his role is fascinating, but also he understands the kind of emotional power of the nurses, um, in particular, 
I think that sort of the image, I, I interviewed Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the RCN this week, and she talked about how when they went into the, for the meeting with the Department of Health and Steve Buckley this week, there were three men sitting on one side of the table from the Department of Health, um, from the politician side, and then five women from the nursing union on the other side of the table. And there's that just clash of cultures. And I think most voters, if they had to choose between a politician and a nurse, they'd be on the side of the nurse. And that's the problem for the ministers, I think. Uh, and if they look too intransigent, they look like they're not listening at all, they're going to lose public sympathy. Although that could switch, because I think... Um, you know, 19% is a very steep demand from the RCN. But what's interesting about that is going back to the reasonable test, they're making clear that they're willing to be flexible on that. You know, if there was an offer similar to the one that uh, was made in Scotland, it would be, I think, you know, they'd at least make, they make clear they'd at least look at that. Uh, so there is some sort of flexibility there, whereas the government is refusing categorically for the moment to discuss pay yeah and it's interesting though just before we recorded this i saw that the um gmb in scotland had voted to reject the payoff that story has a little way to uh, run uh, as well i think mm. which is absolutely fascinating fascinating on the i mean nick talk about the the, the role of the treasury because i mean rachel was talking about jeremy hunt uh, there uh, as i said i i work with him and jeremy he got sort of pugilistic reputation during the junior doctors strike but um actually was very hemmed in by the Treasury uh, and number 10 uh, in terms of his room for manoeuvre during uh, that particular NHS uh, strike. But he's obviously now the man the man holding the purse strings. What do you think about the role of the Treasury in all of this? Well, I think it's absolutely critical. And the decisions that were made in the autumn statement with Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor, I think that probably led to greater funding increases for the NHS and social care than pretty much any other Conservative Chancellor would have provided in the same circumstances. So I think his understanding uh, of the health and care system and public services in general mean that he's more open-minded to providing great funding, but he clearly doesn't want to go much further and he, he doesn't want to set a precedent that if he agrees or makes a higher offer for one set of workers that others will feel uh, emboldened to strike in the hope that they too can get uh, a better deal. And even if he had offered uh, or did offer additional funding or uh, higher pay offers, the question is, does he provide services with more money to pay for those? Or does he expect services to make cuts elsewhere in order to fund that? And that would have quite big implications for the quality of key public services in the run-up to the next election. Yes, and as you, I mean, there's lots of talk from ministers about trying to control inf inflation through these pay rises, but this is really all about budgets and um, and the availability of money, isn't it? Yeah, and to be honest, I think the the inflation point is, is a bit of a red herring. I, I think it's unlikely, as the government claims, that higher pay for public sector workers would fuel inflation because either it would require higher taxes to pay for it, which would reduce demand, or it would lead the Bank of England to raise interest rates to choke off that higher inflation. So, you know, clearly the government should be worried about inflation, but public sector pay is not the tool with which to manage that. Rachel, I mean, you suggested earlier maybe Mick Lynch had uh, started to overplay his hand in the same way that the, the government might have done. Where do you think Labour are and should be on, on this? They've, they've got a tricky balance as well. 
Definitely. I was talking to one shadow cabinet minister the other day who said it's really difficult for Labour because obviously the party, a lot of the party is very on side with the unions. That's where Labour grew out of the union movement. But they need to very much be seen to be on the side of the public and the voters. So Keir Starmer, I think, is treading a very fine line. He's made clear that he doesn't want um, front benches on the picket lines. He's been quite tough about that. Uh, which I think is sensible, but it's a head-heart thing, again, for the Labour Party. Um, And I think, you know, their whole uh, priority between now and the election is to be seen as credible on the economy. So if they start um, showering money around in public sector pay rises left, right and centre, that's going to be blown out of the water. So I think he's got to hold the line on being quite tough in the end. But what he can do is say that they'd be willing to talk uh, and at least negotiate. Uh, and I think where Streeting has been quite uh, clever about that, he sort of said that he he he's at least sounded as if he he'd be willing to listen and speak, for example, to the nurses. But he's also emphasised the importance of uh, NHS reform and saying it's not just about throwing money at the problem. You need to find uh, improved efficiencies. So uh, I think at the moment they're they're probably getting the balance about right, but it is tricky for them given the history of the party and the relationship with the unions. So I think we're taking it. It's heads, heads versus hearts and the reasonable test. Those are the uh, things that might dominate the next few weeks and possibly months. Rachel, while, while you're here, um, you've been writing some really interesting pieces on bullying allegations in the civil service and in parliament. In fact, we spoke about them the, uh, the, other, uh, the other day. Uh, where do you think this story will go? And I, I saw you on social media saying that you'd been pretty shocked by some of the, the stories that you'd, you know, the, the, the people have been telling you. Yeah, I wrote a piece for the Times magazine last weekend um, and I just put out feelers to various contacts in Whitehall and I was uh, amazed by the seniority of the people past and present who came back to speak to me and were willing to talk and were really concerned about uh, the kind of behaviour of some ministers and MPs and also some senior civil servants, to be fair, that there is this culture now seems to have taken hold in Whitehall and Westminster, um, with this sort of loss of decency, really. Um, and I spoke to one former uh, senior figure in Downing Street who used to see a lot of the complaints coming in from around Whitehall, who suggested that around 10% of ministers... Uh, uh, have had some kind of complaint about their behaviour. And there is, I think that you made this point, actually, that there is a sort of, um, there's a systemic problem. So this isn't just a few individuals. So the high profile cases that have been highlighted, Dominic Raab, Priti Patel, um, others you hear about privately. Um, it's more systemic than that. So, so there are there is there are sort of parallel accountability lines for civil servants and for ministers. Um, of course, the prime minister hasn't replaced the independent ethics advisor since um, two of them resigned, not one but two, uh, which is pretty appalling. Um, and who would have a sort of say in theory on um, uh, ministerial bullying? But ultimately that's up to the Prime Minister to deal with. And if you don't, ha- it's back to the kind of Peter Hennessy good chat theory, if you don't have a Prime Minister who uh, cares about decency, uh, then that's all going to fall apart. Um, but I was pretty shocked by some of the uh, 
stories and evidence I heard. And I think in a way what was perhaps most shocking is that it wasn't just, you know, individual instances of bad behaviour. There was a sense that this was part of a political um, shift in the relationship between ministers and civil servants. So um, several people said to me that they felt that ministers now saw the civil service almost as the enemy and that they were coming into the department ready for a fight, expecting to be thwarted left, right and centre. Uh, and, you know, that's where some of this bad behaviour had come from. And that is then a huge problem, actually, for the delivery of policy and for the country. So this isn't just about, you know, it's not just a human resources issue in Whitehall. It's actually about the running of good government. And in the end, comes down to good leadership in uh, the, on the political side and, and amongst the civil service, which I'm sure is a theme that we will return to. Okay, let's look at the NHS in a bit more detail, and in particular, this story in the Times about um, Health Secretary Steve Barclay's restructuring plans. We're joined now by Nick Timmins, IFG Senior Fellow and former Public Policy Editor at the Financial Times. Hello, Nick. Hi. So, Nick, what's this story all about? Is it just desks being moved around, and, and does it matter? Well, it may well matter. Um, it's certainly desks being moved around. I mean, if we're if this is correct, he's clearing the first floor of the department's headquarters in Victoria Street to make an open plan space for himself and his senior officials, but also with space for Amanda Pritchard, the chief executive of NHS England and her senior officials. Uh, now, in theory, the NHS, NHS England is an independent statutory body. Uh, we need to do a bit of history here, but back in 2012, when Andrew Lansley was health secretary, uh, he created what is now NHS England. It's a statutory independent executive to manage the service, uh, with politicians confining themselves to setting policy and objectives and holding the executive to account. And his aim there, he said, was to liberate the NHS to do its job, ending the political micromanagement of the NHS by ministers. Now, it has to be said that you know th- this move does look rather as Steve Barclay wants to try to sort of performance the man performance managed the NHS out of its uh, current travails. Uh, it looks as though Amanda Pritchard and her staff uh, will be spending quite a lot more time in the department and less at their Waterloo headquarters. Now, this is not yet the demise of NHS England uh, because it does indeed retain its headquarters, but it does look as though there's going to be an awful lot more contact between Barclay and uh, NHS England officials as he tries to sort out the trouble that the NHS is currently in. Is it the return of centralisation or is it a sort of sensible relationship management thing? You know, I, maybe it's too, too, too soon to tell. Well, it certainly looks like centralisation. Um, I mean, it's not yet the demise of NHS England because at the moment, for the time being at least, it retains its Waterloo headquarters. But it does look pretty clear as though Amanda Pritchard and the senior officials are going to be spending even more time in the department. And it, it seems to imply that Steve Barclay thinks he can performance manage the NHS out of some of its current troubles. And performance management-wise, Nick uh, Davis, you're um, the master of our performance uh, tracker. Uh, do you think this is a good idea? Uh, well, there's certainly a lot of uh, poor performance to, to manage uh, at the moment. Uh, the NHS entered the pandemic, missing all routine performance 
targets uh, with pretty sharp decline across the board in performance from 2015 onwards. And the pandemic has obviously exacerbated that and the, the situation is now much worse. So you can see why there's a sort of political imperative that uh, Steve Barkley feels to try and get a bit more hands-on. I think the, the big question, though, is whether him putting his hands on it is actually going to make any difference to the variety of problems that are facing the NHS at the moment. As, as the other Nick uh, will say, the kind of the, the history of a, a more direct management of the NHS by previous ministers, it, it, it does not provide uh, a particularly compelling case to do that. No, I, it's interesting that, you know, I mean, virtually every health secretary since the 1980s, when they left office, uh, came to the view it was better that the NHS should be managed at arm's length from politicians rather than directly managed by them. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think there might be some warnings here for Steve Barkley. I mean, the, the Rudolf Klein came up with the great phrase when Labour was trying to directly manage the NHS in its very early days after 1997. That if you, you centralise control, you also centralise blame politically. Um, and I think there is a level at which... You know, you might see this as slightly displacement activity. Uh, I mean, clearly, there is a lot that needs to be sorted out in the NHS. Uh, but what the NHS probably needs most right now is not a rearrangement of the deck chairs between the NHS, NHSE and the department, uh, but a series of policy decisions which absolutely are in the domain of ministers. I mean, addressing the crisis in social care that's preventing hospitals discharging medically fit patients so that they get gummed up with that in turn contributing to ambulances queuing to discharge them. Uh, There's a policy issue of properly solving the pension problem that is seeing consultants and GPs retiring earlier and discouraging them from taking extra shifts. Uh, They could produce this long promised workforce plan which won't immediately help but would point to to a better future. And there's a whole other issue, which is, as as of July, integrated care systems have become statutory organisations, with the the NHS bit being run by something called an integrated care board. And there's clearly an issue about what the relationship should be between these new statutory bodies and the department and the NHSE uh, and the boards themselves. And it's interesting that Patricia Hewitt, the former Labour Health Secretary has been appointed jointly by Barclay and by Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, uh, to look at how they can be given greater autonomy to do their job while balancing that. And there's clearly a bit of a tension here with robust accountability for their performance. But her interim findings are due quite soon. And I think it's unlikely that they're going to include a recommendation for more performance management by ministers. Really interesting. And so two questions on, on, on that, Nick Timmins. Um, the first, going back to what you were saying earlier, how, how far can you ever decentralise blame? I mean, there's the, the old, the, the even more famous quote about a, you know, a bedpan clanging and it uh, uh, reaching, reaching Whitehall uh, straight away. Then the second question on that whole raft of policy and operational questions that you, that you set out there, all of which you sort of try and think about how you, the department might go and solve and, uh, and don't envy them the challenge. Um, what do we know about how Steve Barclay is tackling them? You, you gave some hints there about the British Hewitt Review and so on, but what's the, what's the Barclay style for the NHS is the second question. Well, I think that's what we're discovering. I don't think we really know yet, do mm-hmm. we? Um, I mean, this is this this appears to be a signal. I mean, he had a very brief t- 
two-month spell in the office during all the mayhem in the summer as the administration kept changing. Uh, but he's only been there a few weeks this time around, so we don't really know what his, what his, what his approach is going to be, mm. other than the fact that we have this signal that appears to suggest that he wants to take more control. Just on that, I think it's notable that most of the policy decisions that Nick rightly listed that could make a difference, a lot of them are, re- are either going to cost quite a lot of money up front or will cost money on an ongoing basis. And I think one thing that's clear is Steve Barkley kind of sees himself as someone who's there to make sure that the NHS spending doesn't get even more out of control uh, as he sees it. And it's I think it's that's, that's why he's looking for solutions that aren't costing money or yeah. won't cost money. So, you know, gripping a bit more tightly uh, on management and, and and that type of thing. But in the on the on you know in the long term basis clearly there are ways that the NHS could be more efficient but a lot of those are going to require some investment up front and that's money that he's unwilling to commit at this stage seemingly well, and it, was, it was interesting there was there was a story in the summer that he was saying to the treasury he didn't want any more money for the NHS which sounds slightly extraordinary and uh, the track history of that is not very good the last secretary of state for health who settled for the treasury for far less than he should have wanted was John Moore and that led to the great crisis in the 1980s which led to Margaret Thatcher's review of the NHS and the purchase provider split so uh, you know that's another straw in the wind I suppose. Fascinating so we could be leading to some uh, significant uh, structural reforms I guess if they if they're in government long enough. Yeah Jeremy Hunt has sort of partially rescued Barclay from that by actually giving the NHS some more Mm. money next year but um, you know, it's it, it still is it's still tough. I mean, the question is: Are we heading for structural reforms? You know, is 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 this decision to have this open plan space and what's it? You know, is is that heading towards the eventual abolition of uh, NHS England? Don't know. It's the answer, but maybe. And Nick Timmins, uh, Wes Streeting has been saying some quite interesting things about this. I mean, the, his uh, his sort of spat with the British Medical Association caught their headlines, but that was in the context of, you know, a Blairite public service reform sort of uh, agenda that he seemed to be testing the waters on. Uh, do, do you think that will catch fire? Uh, well, we'll wait and see, won't we? I mean, it, it does. Um, I mean, you know, all, all governments of the BOA end up in battles eventually at some point. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, you know, it just it just just seems to be the nature of these things. Um, uh, but we, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see what Streeting will do. I mean, it's interesting that he too has been quite cautious about money uh, for the NHS, uh, and that but that but that is clearly in the current context where Labour is determined this far out from an election not to commit itself to to things that it may. Come to regret. I'm not just. I'm not talking about just health here. About I mean across the whole of public spending. Mm. Um, so that caution is deeply understandable at the moment. And both of you, sort of final question: How far do you think the NHS will feature in the next election campaign? I mean, there was a always a sense that Jeremy Hunt had successfully neutralised it for the 2015 campaign, and then we've been in a Brexit uh, uh, and uh, a COVID world since then. Is this going to be a, a, a huge part of 2024, 2025, whenever the election actually is? What do you think? I mean, it, clearly the attempt to it, giving it more money in the autumn statement was part of an attempt to neutralise it uh, as an issue uh, at the next election. But frankly, 
performance is now so bad. And even with that additional money, I think there's little prospect of it meaningfully improving in the next uh, year or two. And as long as people are waiting, you know, or can't get an ambulance, uh, waiting half a day or longer in A&E and can't get a GP appointment, then it's going to be an extremely high profile political issue. Yes, I'll agree. I mean, the NHS always plays at some point during the election. Uh, and no doubt it will play quite significantly come 2024, if that's when the election is. Uh, because the fact is, there is no quick recovery from the position the NHS is in. Uh, it's going to take several years to begin to get right anywhere near to back down to where it was pre-pandemic. And worth bearing in mind that that is pre-pandemic is a lot worse than it was five or ten years earlier to that. It's going to be a tough old few years. Uh, Nick Timmins, I'm sure you will come back uh, and talk to us about it uh, again. Thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Okay, let's end the podcast with a quick fire round. It's moment of the year time. Rachel, what's yours? I'm going to go for the mini budget that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did, because obviously politically that was completely disastrous for them. All the kind of, you know, the economy went absolutely haywire after all those graphs of everything going in the wrong direction. So it was an incredibly dramatic moment for the country and for the economy and for politics. But it also, I think, highlighted the fact that ideology and, you know, um, refusal to listen to advice, refusal to look at the facts, a refusal to trust the experts is actually a disaster. And it it kind of made the case for reasonableness, rationality, uh, and listening to advice and listening to dissenting views. Uh, And this kind of, it was a very totemic moment, obviously, um, in terms of the future of the Tory party, but also for politics, because I think it was a sort of signal that moderation was important. And Nick, what about you? Oh, there have been so many. I think if I had to go for a single moment, it would probably be uh, Sajid Javid's resignation from Boris Johnson's government. Although the kind of the end had seemed near for Boris Johnson for a very long time, it was, I think, at, at that point that was the real tipping moment and was quickly followed by Rishi Sunak and dozens of other ministers and led to Johnson's own resignation less than two days later. I was on a plane when that happened and we landed and obviously everyone switched on their phones and the kind of ping, ping, ping of all the news alerts as they as they came through, that was that would be high up in my, my moments of the year. For me, I think, uh, agree with both of those, but the, the death of the Queen is the one that's going to stick in the, in the history books. Then finally, while unknown events will always knock us uh, off, off course, what about a defining moment for 2023? Get your crystal balls out, uh, Rachel. I'm really interested to know what happens with the Northern Ireland Protocol and the relationship between the UK and the EU uh, and where Rishi Sunak takes that and how he balances the demands of his right-wingers and the realities of the need for closer cooperation with the EU for the the sake of the economy and how that affects relationships within government as well between Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, for example, uh, so that's one that I would highlight to look out for and that I want to know what happens. And Nick? I will probably go for the local elections next year as it's a big test for Rishi Sunak, given how 
fragile his position is already. And I suppose if those go badly, then the the vote of confidence that he may face afterwards, and I, I suppose the question for Conservative MPs of no matter how bad politically the situation is for them, can they really change Prime Minister another time before the next election? Quite so. Um, uh, and my, my serious one would be um, uh, what happens in uh, Ukraine and, uh, and Russia after the sort of unfreezing of, uh, of, of winter and what might happen before then. But if I'm, if I'm allowed a frivolous one, uh, I'm looking forward to you know, the world's uh, media descending on the, the UK, um, a feast of pageantry, um, kings and queens from across Europe coming to town. Uh, it is not the coronation. It's the Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool <laughs> in, in May. So that's, uh, that's, my, that's my lighter moment. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to the two Nicks, Davis and Timmins, and especially to Rachel Sylvester for joining us. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, all major platforms, and do leave us an end-of-year review too. The weekly podcast will be taking a break for Christmas now, but look out for a special edition landing in your feeds on Boxing Day. And before that, head to our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find a trio of new IFG reports and, landing soon, details of a very exciting day of IFG events with a brilliant lineup of speakers in January. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening all year. Have a very happy Christmas and see you soon.